This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, supporting journalistic excellence in the digital age. Learn more about Knight Foundation at kf.org. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. University of Chicago President Robert Zimmer and author Shoshana Zuboff and Roger McNamee join the Washington Post to discuss the future of free expression. Let's listen. Good afternoon, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michael Duffy, opinion editor at large here at the Post. And my guest today is Robert Zimmer, president of the University of Chicago. Thank you for joining us, Professor Zimmer. Um, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to join you. Let's start with your principles. In 2014, the University of Chicago laid out some basic concepts uh, governing expression on campus. Uh, uh, just tell us, remind us a little bit about what those uh, said and were designed to do, please. Right, they were designed to actually capture a long-standing perspective, a long-standing set of beliefs, and a long-standing set of reactions of the University of Chicago. Really, since its inception in the 1890s. And that was that free expression, open discourse, intellectual challenge were absolutely critical to the environment of a great university. And that if you aspire to be a great university, as of course we do at the University of Chicago, and I like to think we succeed more often than not, that um, it is absolutely critical to maintain these enduring principles that you will not shut down speech, uh, you will not prevent faculty or student groups from inviting speakers, that the idea that somebody is saying things that make some collection of people uncomfortable is not a reason that they should not express their ideas on campus and not a reason that faculty and students should not be able to hear these ideas. So the Chicago principles were fundamentally a statement about the absolute criticality of free expression and open discourse and underlying that, the intellectual challenge that comes with it, if you want to create an education that is going to be empowering for students, being able to deal with complex problems during the rest of their life, and going to create an environment for faculty where their research can be the most original, the most challenging, and the most impactful. Uh, we felt the, the timing of this was uh, reactive. The principles themselves were in a sense not really reactive. These are things that we believed in for a long time, that one president after another of my predecessors and one faculty group after another had been very articulate in describing but it was at a time when we were seeing one university after another disinviting somebody because some segment of the 
university community thought that their ideas should not be heard. And we knew that that was not us and we needed to say it. So I charged this faculty committee specifically to lay out the long-standing uh, commitment and enduring values of the University of Chicago with respect to free expression and open discourse. Would you say five or six years later that it's working well? Um, I think I think it is. The answer is yes and no. I would say, from the point of view of the University of Chicago itself, it's working reasonably well. I mean, it was not really a departure for the university. It was a statement of things that everybody knew was in the air for a hundred years. And reinforcing that, I viewed as very important. Uh, you, running universities is a complicated task. And one needs to keep in mind the fundamental and enduring values of the university when you're making any decision about the university. Uh, this may seem like a funny statement because you make all sorts of decisions that they really all have to do with fundamental values. I guess you could argue that not every single one, but way more often than you think. So having a set of fundamental principles, a place you stand and can say, this is the meaning of what we are as an institution, I think is very important. And I think sometimes when you see universities struggle with free expression. Uh, to my mind, some of it is that they haven't gotten great clarity around what are their fundamental principles and what are just things that they have to do with and, and they have to deal with. So I think from the point of view of laying out fundamental principles, reinforcing fundamental principles, uh, guiding actions on the University of Chicago campus, it's been, it's been very good. Um, I would say that there's quite a number of universities, I forget the exact number must be, somewhere in the 70s or 80s, universities and colleges who have adopted the Chicago principles or some version of them that they wrote themselves. And this, I think, is a, is a real positive also, because I don't really view this as about the University of Chicago per se. I view this as about higher education and education in general. What, do, what does it mean? And when I sometimes go someplace where people have invited me to talk about free expression, and they say, you at Chicago have a very clear point of view about this. How come we can't get to a clear point of view? And I always answer the question by saying, when you hand out a diploma, is there a clear sense as to what that means? Does the institution know it? Do the faculty know it? Do the students know it? Do they understand what it means to get a diploma from your institution? Does it mean that they've just uh, kind of 
time in class and how many classes they took and passed some exams? Or does it have a deeper meaning around the nature of their education and what are the intellectual skills and habits of mind that they've been able to develop through their education? And if you don't have those kinds of fundamental principles, then, then you're just stuck in an argument. Some people like the Chicago principle, some say, well, we don't need them. And so you'll, you just have an argument, but you have no basis on which to be judging. Would you say they've, that the principals have engendered more speech on campus? And how do you know? Um, I don't know that it's generated more speech on campus. I think and we have an environment where um, you know, we basically tell every faculty member and every registered student organization that because we want an open, intellectually challenging environment, they have the prerogative to invite who they want to speak. And I hope that it's made people feel freer in terms of who they want to speak and not have to have the fear that, well, if we invite this person, this group's not going to like it, and then who knows if the administration will back us up or if they won't, uh, because we will. And um, uh, so I hope that it's reinforced this sense on campus that we are a place of constant challenge, constant argument, uh, constant exploration of ideas, and the belief that clarity derives from the clash of ideas, not from deference to somebody else's idea. So Let, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I think it's been useful in that sense, and I think other places that have adopted the principles have also found it useful. Uh, one more question about, about uh, the, fa the situation on the ground. Would you say it's engendered more respectful speech? Well, uh, again, I think that the culture of the university has always supported that. So whether you really attributed to these principles or not, to the stating of these principles or not, I don't know. I think it's certainly the case that that has been the culture at the university. Now, that said, we are certainly in a challenging time in terms of discourse in this country in general. And the University of Chicago, like all the universities, doesn't exist in isolation. And the ambient environment in the country certainly has an impact on, on people. So I would say that the kind of negativity and demonizing of people that you disagree with, which is so common in the country at this point, and which I view as, uh, as very problematic, and deeply problematic if you actually want to try to educate people. Um, I would say that 
we're, we're not immune from that, but we work hard at, at minimizing that type of, uh, of demonization as a reasonable response to disagreement. I, I, there's no question that we're in a much different environment than we were in 2014 or 15. Um, uh, would you say that the president's words and tone have made it uh, more difficult to uphold the principles or at least encourage people to follow them or not? Um, I, I would say that that on campus, it's not um, the the primary effects are not political effects. And I, I emphasize to everyone that it's a mistake to politicize the issue around free expression, because free expression for universities is about fundamental principles of how do you fulfill your missions of education and research at the highest possible level. And if you're asking who's, who's going to be opposed to free speech sometimes, the answer is every, every part of the political spectrum sometimes has been and will be again uh, uncomfortable with free expression. People are more comfortable with free expression when they imagine that the people who are going to get to speak are the ones they agree with. And um, I keep having to remind people who want, oh, we should control what can be said and what can't be. I said, you say that because you imagine that the committee that's sitting around the table deciding that is going to be agreeing with you. Suppose they have exactly the opposite views than you have. How comfortable are you actually feeling about a group of people sitting around the table as the free speech committee deciding what can be said and what can be heard? And um, so I'm, uh, I'm very wary of this type of uh, politicizing this because for me, this is about the fundamental principles of what it means to be a great university that um, if you really ask who's, is there one end of the political spectrum that causes a problem and one end that doesn't, history shows that everybody's a problem. <laughs> so you don't see greater pushback from right or left, one or the other? No, you know, you get pushback from, you get pushback from both. And uh, we always have. Yeah, and do you see um, the same kind of, uh, it, what about from between undergraduates and faculty? Um, I, would, I would say again, you hear it, uh, you hear it from, from both. Mm -hmm. um, I would say probably uh, more from undergraduates and from faculty. Uh, you hear it somewhat from faculty who, you know, many of whom have deep political interests, but uh, faculty have also thought long and hard about the nature of education and what it means. And 
many undergraduate students have come to college a month ago. So they, they have a different type of perspective. I mean, their perspective is still important. You want to hear it, you want to discuss it. But the, the nature of their perspective compared to faculty who have been embedded in universities for decades and honestly have devoted their whole life toward professional life, toward seeing the flourishing of, um, of a particular commitment to a challenging education. It, it's just a different, different kinds of background that people bring and it's pretty uh, natural in some sense inevitable. Uh, do you worry that you may have members of your faculty who uh, fear suffering some kind of reputational damage about how they handle classroom debate or because of their own research and teaching? And how do you combat that? Uh, there are there are certainly faculty, and I hear this at every university I go to, who are who are quite concerned about the nature of discourse that that they are running and that, um, you know, people don't want to be demonized for doing their job well. And uh, so people worry about it. And I think in terms of um, how it is one combats it, is one simply needs to reinforce fundamental principles and fundamental meaning and what it's about over and over again. And when specifics come up to uh, support students, to support faculty in their efforts to create challenging dialogue and to develop their own views and express them. And we have to support people in doing that. In uh, last year, President Trump issued an executive order uh, concerning free expression on campus, uh, particularly with respect to conservative views. Um, and while you acknowledged then uh, the importance of cultivating an environment in which everyone felt free to speak, you also pushed back pretty clearly on the idea of any inter uh, government intervention uh, in that um, tug of war. Uh, uh, to walk us through your thinking there, your reasoning, if you can. Yeah, well, this occurred when I was uh, testifying at uh, a congressional committee that was discussing this item, and I was specifically asked the question, was I in favor of the federal government intervening in this way? And I said no, because the idea that the federal government was going to now take a part in deciding what it is that is appropriate to be said on campus, I viewed as deeply problematic. And, um, you know, what, what, what is the next thing? And just having the government, the federal government involved and saying that's okay, that's not okay, I, I view as deeply problematic. Have you seen f any further indications that there's, uh, that's likely to happen? Um, 
Mm, nothing that I don't read in the Washington Post. Good answer. Uh, uh, let's try a different one. Uh, do you think, uh, you know, I feel like you were going to answer this before and then I may have cut you off. Do you think the space for free expression has grown or shrunk in the country uh, in the past six years? Well, I think it's certainly shrunk in general, whether it's exactly six years or a longer trend. I, I wouldn't uh, have to do more work before I could make express such a, a sharp view. But I think that the, um, the, this tendency to demonize those that you disagree with or find disagreeable is, uh, is, is more present and, you know, if you, maybe you see it on, uh, uh, on public things, whether on the web or on events like this and so on. But I think it's also, you know, it's also true that people, students and faculty at high schools experience this. And they, uh, high schools, we need to recognize high schools are not the same thing as universities, but high school should be preparing students to be in an environment of intellectual challenge. Just they prepare students to do all sorts of things at college, take mathematics, write papers. They should be preparing people to be in an environment of intellectual challenge and open discourse. Some are, some work hard at it, but I think that this kind of uh, depth of demonization, which comes from a deeply self-righteous view on the part of you know, one, one person, one group or another, uh, is very prevalent. It's pretty deep in the country right now. And it's, uh, you know, we see it reflected in uh, what comes into universities in terms of people, students, staff, faculty. And um, it's, to my mind, it's, uh, it's quite disturbing as a, as a way of a society operating. And have you had any thoughts since you uh, uh, unveiled the principles about how perhaps some of those ideas could be um, spread among uh, the populace generally? Or uh, do we have to wait for everyone to go through the University of Chicago and its like-minded schools uh, to grow up? Yeah, that is a very uh, important and interesting question. And I've been thinking about this. I haven't come to a firm conclusion about it, but I I've been thinking about it because I do think it's uh, it, certainly for universities, it's an absolutely essential issue and well beyond that, I think it's an essential issue. So without having come to a conclusion, I, I have been thinking about it a bit. Uh, you know, anytime we have a conversation about uh, free expression, it isn't too long before someone brings up the First Amendment, and um, and it isn't too long after that, uh, at least I discovered, that people don't really understand uh, 
what it is and who it protects uh, whom from whom. You know, uh, can you just talk a little bit about the misunderstandings about uh, the First Amendment, since people tend to brandish it in um, situations where it has almost no applicability? That, that's right. So the First Amendment, if you read it, it's very clear how it starts off. Congress shall make no laws and then goes through a number of things around religion, speech, the press. And so the protection of free speech from the First Amendment is written right there that Congress shall make no laws. Um, I forget exactly what verb it's used there, but it's uh, along the lines of restricting uh, uh, freedom of uh, speech and uh, freedom of the press. And so what it is about is what the government can do. And this has been taken as meaning on general principles, been taken as a meaning bigger than just Congress, but what state governments can do and so on, what any government can do. So it is about protecting the citizenry from actions by the government that could restrict their ability to speak freely. And that means that private institutions, in particular private universities, are not subject to the First Amendment. We can't violate it even if we wanted to because it doesn't apply to us. Now, if you're a public university, you're both a university, but you're an agency of, uh, of the state. And consequently, public universities do have First Amendment obligations, and there's a lot of jurisprudence around this, which I'm not an expert in, uh, but I know you can find experts in. And, uh, but the main point there is that that is about a public university, and hence about the government. So this does get confused. And when I'm talking about the University of Chicago or I'm talking about higher education in general, I'm not talking about the First Amendment. What I'm talking about is the nature of excellence of education that are going to give people intellectual skills and habits of mind that are going to enable them to confront the complex challenges that they will confront and that society needs them to confront in their future. And uh, similarly around the research environment for faculty, but also for graduate students. So um, it's there, there's some overlap because people talk about, well, why is the First Amendment important to a good government? and are important to democracy, depending upon what argument they're making. Uh, and very often the argument sort of overlaps with the education argument to some extent, uh, which is that how are you going to come to understanding about complex issues and how, how are you go going to come to any sorts of decisions if you don't have this diversity of views and you don't have people listening to each other. And so that's one of the arguments 
that people use around the First Amendment with respect to the government as to why it's important. And in that way, there's some overlap with why you would say it's important in terms of education. It's still not the same thing. They're not identical, even though there's overlap. And certainly the obligations of the First Amendment are very different from what I feel are the obligations of a great university to do a great job. I mean, that's what I'm concerned about. I appreciate you, you drawing the distinction, yeah. yeah. I, I appreciate you clarifying that. And in the short time we have left, could you just, uh, in that context, talk, uh, or just what do you think are the greatest threats uh, to free expression in the country today? Uh, I would say that, you know, we're, we're at a time of a lot of stress on the system. We've got a, um, we've got social unrest, we've got a pandemic, which it, it just causes a lot of stress on people. Uh, we've got a national election that is generating a lot of emotional reaction and a lot of strong feelings and a lot of strong views. So you've got all these stresses on the system. And one of the one of the great dangers with respect to free expression is people feeling uh, very morally sure of themselves and dismissive of other people's views. And so there's a degree of uh, self-righteousness, self-satisfaction, and so on, that makes some people feel like, well, we are the ones who know what is really right and really good, and the other people are not so good and certainly not right, and why should anybody hear them? And that's a very dangerous slope, but you hear it all the time. And I would say there's that is a significant problem in the country, which is exacerbated by all the stress. Because with a lot of stress, people feel more emotion. And with more emotion around these issues, they can um, become problematic with respect to uh, allowing or being willing to allow people to speak. And importantly, this is also about people hearing, um, people being able to hear different points of view. It's not just about who gets to speak, it's about who gets to hear different points of view. And um, then you always have, as reflected in the First Amendment, you always have the question of of pure power and what that can do for people who want to stay in power, gain power, and so on. And this has been the, this was at least arguably in part a kind of origin of the First Amendment, being worried about what the government was going to do. And that still, um, still occurs and one should never feel quite comfortable that that, 
that issue is all taken care of. It's uh, history doesn't show that that issue is all taken care of. And thank you. Wise words. Uh, uh, a that's a challenging assessment, but also helpful, um, particularly at, at a time like this. Uh, President Zimmer, that's unfortunately all the time we have. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being asked and I appreciate our conversation. So thank you. We will ask you back again. Um, and I will be right back to continue our program with authors Shoshona Zuboff and Roger McNamee to discuss how social media platforms are affecting free speech. So stick around. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor at large at the Washington Post, and we've been discussing free speech uh, in the state of free expression around the country uh, today. Thank you for coming and joining with us. Um, I'm joined now by a Professor Emerit at Harvard Business School, Roger McNamee. He's an investor with 35 years of experience in Silicon Valley and the author of the new book, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Uh, thank you for being here, Roger. It's great to be here, Michael. Thank you. I had a little trouble hearing you for a moment there. Well, I'm sure you didn't miss anything. Um, uh, you were an early investor in Facebook, a mentor to Mark Zuckerberg, uh, and an early critic of the platform. Um, uh, in the context of the state of free speech, has Facebook helped or hurt on the whole? Oh, it's been a disaster. You know, I think the issue with Facebook, and this is where the confusion lies, is that we have conflated free speech with reach. Uh, the Stanford researcher, Rene DiResta, wrote a fantastic piece about this a number of years ago. And the notion here is that on Facebook, on Google, on uh, Twitter, anything can be put up there. And I'm the last person on earth to want to see the people running those companies act as censors. That would be a disaster. The issue relates to the fact that these companies use algorithms to grab our attention. And so they, they're really in the business of amplifying the most emotionally activating content. And that's going to be hate speech, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. And so the misunderstanding that we have relates to you know, whether that stuff is a byproduct or in fact central to the proposition. And I believe strongly that in fact, inflammatory content, harmful content is the lubricant that maximizes engagement, it maximizes the success of the platforms. And it is a tremendous threat to democracy and now public health, which is frightening. Uh, joining us also is Tarzana Zupoff, the author of The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, A Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. Good to talk to you again, Tarzana. Hello, Michael. It's, um, we're getting closer to actually meeting each other. <laughs> <laughs> Someday. Um, your book presents a compelling case. Go ahead. Your book uh, presents a compelling case that uh, the companies, that we are the actual raw material uh, uh, that these companies need, the data that allows them to both enrich themselves, but also um, affect how we interact, maybe even affect how we think. Yeah, well, you know, when you understand the logic of surveillance capitalism, I think it suggests a really different angle for this conversation that we're having, Michael, about free speech. So I'd, I'd like to I'd like to flip it around a little bit. You know, 
Facebook is a language like uh, Aramaic or ancient Greek or any other language. You have to study it and then you have to be able to translate it into normal English. And I think the Facebook language about free speech has been deeply misunderstood. If Facebook was really interested in our constitutional rights, it would be primarily interested in the Fourth Amendment, which as everybody knows is about search and seizure. So this is in response to the first part of your comment, Michael. Surveillance capitalism exists by unilaterally taking, which is what any eight-year-old would translate as stealing, unilaterally taking our private experience, translating it into behavioral data for analysis, manufacture, and sales. Now, <clears throat> what it desperately needs is a lot of our speech. And what it needs even more desperately is for our speech to be free to it. In other words, when Mr. Zuckerberg is uh, extolling the importance of free speech, what he really means is that our speech must be a zero cost asset to him, to Facebook. That's the free speech that Facebook is interested in. If we want to have a real conversation about free speech as given to us by the American Constitution, that is a completely different conversation than the one we're having about speech on the Facebook platform. Surveillance capitalism cannot endure unless our lives, our experience is a zero cost asset for these huge corporations. And believe me, final sentence, that is the only way, the fact that our speech is free to Facebook is the only way that Facebook could boast eight, a nearly $800 billion market capitalization today, about what, eight years since its IPO? <laughs> 10 years since Roger, it became IPO. Roger, I see you nodding. <laughs> I'm a huge, listen, I'm a huge fan of Shoshana. I, I consider myself a disciple. And you know, when I wrote my book, I spent a lot of time hypothesizing about the role that culture and business model played in the development of Facebook in particular, but also Google and Twitter. And Shoshana really put a microscope to that whole issue. And the conversations that we've been having until the last month have been taking place in a essentially in a framework chosen by Facebook and others, where we have been looking at the problem as though if they hire 10,000 people to review content, that will somehow solve it. The issues we're dealing with, as Shoshana has said so articulately, are endemic to the business model and to the culture of these companies. And there is no way that they are going to fix themselves. They've had plenty of opportunities. I mean, let's think and put this in context. I mean, we're talking about the 2016 election. We're talking about 2016 Brexit, the Brazilian election of 2018, but also a genocide in Myanmar, a massive terrorism attack in New Zealand. These are all issues that took place where Facebook's internal culture 
accepted these as a necessary cost of achieving their mission of unifying the whole world on one platform controlled by Mark Zuckerberg. It is a very authoritarian vision. And my basic point here is that we need to be honest about it. We need to have all the data there and have a real debate about whether that's the future we want to live in. I would like to think it is not. And when I see people standing in line to vote for six, eight, 10, 12 hours, I'm reminded what it means to be an American and how important it is for people to exercise real free speech in the places that it actually matters. Shoshana, do you think we're, in a, we're still in a free marketplace of ideas? Or are we now already in a tech-driven public square? Well, I mean, we have a marketplace of ideas, but it, unfortunately, it's not on the internet. The internet, the tragedy of the last two decades, Michael, is that the internet is now essentially owned and operated by surveillance capitalism. That doesn't mean it's a wild west. It's not some big free space. What it means is that the specific economic imperatives, compulsions, iron laws, if you will, of this economic logic determine everything that happens on these platforms. So this is why, you know, we we discovered that you know, guess what? Facebook's news feed and its algorithms are all designed to maximize our engagement for one simple reason. The more engagement, the more of our behavioral data it's extracting from our experience, plowing that into its supply chains on the way to its computational factories in order to be produced into predictions that are sold to advertisers and other business customers. We know, Michael, from a leaked Facebook memo in 2018, that inside that AI hub, that operation um, ingests trillions of data points every day and produces 6 million predictions of our behavior per second. The only way that kind of unimaginable scale can be accomplished is because every single system is driven to these economic objectives by the, 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 the intrinsic imperatives of this logic. So there is nothing happening on Facebook that isn't about Facebook's revenue flow, which translates into profit, which translates into that 800 billion market cap that we were talking about. Michael, can I? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was just <laughs> to say, our lives, are far more governed by the rules of Facebook and Google and Twitter than they are by the governments that we have elected. And that is not an accident. I mean, it has been, there is a, was a book written, I wanna say 10 years ago by an ex-Facebook person who talked about the fact that Mark internally always thought of Facebook as a different kind of government. And that's the sort of thing that if we, if they went through a classic democratic process where we had discussions and honest presentation of ideas, maybe people would vote for that. The problem is, as Shoshana says, they are doing this out of our awareness. We are not conscious of what's going on. And that is incredibly dangerous. And I think COVID in particular, but also the death of George Floyd, have combined to bring to light the incredible dangers of allowing these companies to amplify extreme speech because if you're amplifying extreme speech at a time of a pandemic 
or period of, shall we say, racial unrest, the consequences can be life or death to a lot of people. And I think that awareness has radically altered the conversation, especially in the last 30 days. That's interesting. Uh, so to either of you, how do we begin to regulate this? And Or is it now already too late to regulate? Well, you know, um, let's say something really positive and hopeful right now, because this situation is is bad, as we've been discussing. But this thing is only on Facebook, you know, it's just about 10 years old. Surveillance capitalism has been developed and expanded and flourishing for only two decades. We are at the beginning of this, not the end. I want everybody to know that when we talk about the free freedom of expression and the right to free speech as bequeathed to us by the American Constitution, we're talking about an 18th century concept of tremendous um, tremendous significance and beauty. The problem is that we're not in the 18th century now. We're in the 21st century. We're in the digital century. And the work that we haven't yet done, Michael, is to figure out how do we translate these rights that are precious to us? How do we translate them into a digital world and into a digital future in a way that assures their compatibility with democracy, in a way that assures that they continue to fulfill our democratic aspirations. This is essential work for this early part of the 21st century that we have not yet undertaken. If you think about the 20th century, it was in the third and fourth decades of the 20th century, century primarily, that we developed the charters of rights. I can, I can join a union. I, I have the right to strike. We have the right to bargain collectively. The new legislative frameworks, including things like child labor laws, essential to, the, to a democratic industrial century, the regulatory paradigms, the, um, the institutional forms, everything that we rely on today from OSHA to the to the FDA, the SEC, and so forth, all of social security and, and healthcare, all of these things were invented during a very fertile period of, of the early part of the 20th century. And it was those institutional and legal inventions that finally tethered industrial capitalism, subjugated it to the rule of law and democracy. It began with antitrust, because that's on everybody's mind right now, Michael. It began with antitrust, but that was only the beginning. Antitrust is only the foot in the door. So this is the work we have ahead of us. Now we know, because of um, the fact that you were referencing before the, that Great Night Rider Gallup poll, which just came out in, in July, uh, and there are other very important polls, too, some of which drill right down in Facebook. But the bottom line, folks, on all of these recent surveys is the American public registering a complete rupture of faith with the tech sector and specifically with Facebook. So we have the people with us. 
uh, we're all together now. People get this. People are saying no. If you believe in supply and demand, let me tell you, demand always comes first. Ultimately, supply's got to subjugate itself to demand. So we've got all the pieces. We need our lawmakers with us. This is the decade where we do the work that needs to be done. That's the way I see Roger, it. Roger, are you as optimistic as Shoshona sounds? <laughs> I, I am actually incredible. I'm incredibly optimistic. And let me build on a couple things that she just said. So the first thing is, again, awareness has grown dramatically this year. The pandemic, George Floyd, and uh, the economic contraction, I think, are causing the country to reappraise a lot of things. We're obviously going to have to rebuild our democracy. And I think it starts, as Shoshana said, by fixing the flaws in our Internet. Because right now, it's not the open internet that we wanted. It is a closed proprietary system controlled by Google, Facebook, Amazon. And so to me, what I love is if you look in the U.S. policymaker circle, in the House of Representatives, the antitrust subcommittee of the Judiciary uh, Committee produced this monumental report two weeks ago, signed on by both Republicans and Democrats, clearly making the case of antitrust violations by the big three. But I go way beyond that. If you look in the other key committee in the House of Representatives, which is Engineering and, and uh, Commerce, the Consumer Protection Subcommittee headed by Jan Schakowsky, doing fantastic work both in privacy and now in safety. Because one of the issues here is these tech products, the tech engineers are not held to any standard if you think about in any other area of engineering, you're responsible for the work you create, except here. Here, they're allowed to do massive damage without any liability. And that's going to change, thanks to the House of Representatives. On the Senate side, you have Senator Warren, you have Senator Markey, you have Senator Blumenthal. Uh, there's just lots and lots of senators who work on this. Obviously, the antitrust division of the Justice Department just yesterday filed an antitrust case against Google. State attorneys general across all 50 states are doing the same thing. The Europeans are doing the same thing. The great thing is you don't need to have harm to have what we love about the internet. In fact, it should be very easy to engineer it out. It will not be as profitable as stealing people's data and using it to manipulate them. That's the most attractive business model ever created. But as Shoshana likes to say, like slavery, we may well conclude that this is a business model that violates our most basic values as Americans. And I look forward to a future where we have, where we return to capitalism from monopoly and that we let a thousand new flowers bloom in the tech industry, addressing all the needs that cannot be met in a world where surveillance capitalists have the ability to control everything that everyone does. So I'm super, super bullish, much more so than I would have been just a few months ago. I'm so glad I turned in. This is, this is, this, <laughs> um, uh. You guys have been informative and provocative, and and it's it's great to hear the optimism as well. Um, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, Shoshana, Roger, thank you for joining us, uh, uh, and we thank hope you we can do it again. Thank you both. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.